Good morning. Merry Christmas to everybody. Although, can I still say that? Is it, what do you think, what's the cutoff for that? Merry Christmas? Actually, yeah, in New Year, somebody said, um, uh, actually, um, the church has made it a tradition to celebrate Christmas for uh, not just one day, but a couple days. Who knows how many days it is? It's 12, 12 days, right? Of course, 12 days of Christmas. And do y'all know that actually the 12 days of Christmas start at Christmas Day, not in the middle of December? Um, the idea is that during Christmas, they call it Christmas Tide, which sounds so fancy. I love it. Christmas Tide, that we would remember um, that Christ came to dwell among us. We just spend like a season, uh, 12 days, considering what it means that Christ came to dwell among us. And so our passage this morning is perfect for that. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, so we're going to talk about this thing called the incarnation, which is basically just a fancy word for meaning that God came to us in the person of his son, Jesus, the incarnation. Um, and we're going to talk about it through this, through the back door, this Old, this old Testament story in the book of Exodus. Um, and I didn't make this up, by the way. You'll see what I mean is that um, we're going to see that it looks like John has this in mind as he's writing for, as he's writing John 1. Um, so we're not going to turn there. I just want you to like just listen to me tell the story because it's going to cover quite a few chapters and it'll be, you'll be flipping a lot if you're trying to keep up with me. Um, so just let it wash over you. And then we're going we're gonna to look at two words, um, dwell and glory. And just so you can see that I'm not making this up. And then after that, we're going to consider what it means that Jesus is full of grace and truth. We'll see that God is delighted and determined to give good gifts even to those, maybe even especially to those who don't deserve it. God is delighted, de delighted and determined to give good gifts to those who don't deserve it. Um, let me read just one more verse in John, just so we have it fresh in our mind, then we're going to pray. This is John 1, 14. We're going to focus on this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for sending your Son. I pray this morning that you would um, show us a new level of what that means for, for us today. I pray that as we consider your incarnation, your coming among us, that you would come into our hearts now in this room, um, collectively and in each of us. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be in Exodus. And like I said, don't worry about turning there because you'll be flipping a lot if you're trying to keep up because we're just going to skim. We're going to fly really high over the Exodus story. Um, so remember how Exodus starts when God's people, they're all slaves in what place? Egypt, right? They're under merciless Pharaoh. He's making them make bricks without straw and all that stuff. And then God sends someone to deliver them back out of it. Who is it? It's Moses. You guys are doing a great job. So Moses, and he's got, um, and he declares uh, 10 plagues on, on Egypt, right? So after the 10 plagues, God leads them out and he leads them, uh, remember, through, through the Red Sea. It's amazing. Through the Red Sea. Um, and he, he rescues them and they're in the wilderness. And how are the people doing? Are they grateful? No, they start complaining. Remember this, like right away, like right as they <laughs> walk through the, the sea. And then they come out like, oh, man, like, come on. And so they're complaining already. 
And they accuse God of abusing them and misleading them. And still, God doesn't leave them. In fact, he commits them himself to them through a relationship. We call it a covenant. Um, and in the, these covenant, there's the Ten Commandments. And there's a bunch more laws of how to approach God. And we often think of these as just rules. And there are rules, like no way around it. But they're more than just like a set of rules. It's, it's, the, it's, God's, um, it's God's promise to stay in relationship with his people. He says, I want to dwell with you and be close to you. And to do so, like, you're going to have to, you're gonna have to walk through these, these guidelines, these rules, these boundaries. Um, so here's what happens, is that Moses goes up to this mountain called Mount Sinai, and God gives him these covenant guidelines. Um, and then he comes back down, and he tells the people, this is what you got to do to stay in relationship. And what do they say? Are they down? They are. They, they say, they'll say, we'll do everything God's commanded us. And so from the very beginning, it's like, okay, we're off to a good start, right? They say, we'll do everything. It's fine. And Moses says, great, hang tight. And he goes back up the mountain to talk to God some more about the guidelines and the covenant and all that stuff. And um, while he's up there, everyone's like, man, it's taking Moses a while. You know what we better do? We better um, bring Moses second in command, Aaron. And they, they tell him to make us a calf. Because we don't know what's become of Moses. He's been up there for a long time. Who knows what's going on anymore? Let's make a calf. And Aaron, who's Moses' second command, he should know better. But he says, okay, everyone throw off your jewelry and we'll make a, this like big golden calf. And so, um, so here's what happens is that they, they throw all the jewelry in this like whatever cauldron or something and they make a calf. And then this is how Aaron introduces it. He says, behold, these are your gods that led you out of Egypt not even close to true. They just made it out of, out of their gold. Like, it's not even close to true. Um, and it's, it's so sad because here's what's basically just happened is that when Moses came to give them these covenant guidelines um, and they, they promised, um, it was kind of like at a wedding, okay? So um, this is a place we get married. And so you can picture, like, you know, they, they walk up here. They commit themselves to each other through vows. And then as they're leaving, before they even get the door, one of them, let's say the, the bride, like, winks at some guy. And then they, like, you know, drive off together <laughs> afterwards before the reception even happens. That's basically what's happening right here, is that they've just pledged themselves to God. And, um, and then they're, they're banning in the commandments like that. Um, so they forget God's faithfulness. And they also break the first two commandments with this golden calf incident. Right? They, um, because they put another God before him, and they also make a golden image. So this is just a mess. Um, and so what's God's response to this? You know, what, what's he going to do? He's obviously pretty upset. You know, he's pretty upset. Um, and I think he, he would be, um, he sounds like he's angry and also um, heartbroken at the same time. And so um, this is his response. Moses asks for God's grace and his mercy. And in this like crazy turn of events, God says, okay. And so he gives Moses more of these guidelines to make. And one of the, part of, one of the things he does is ask him to make a tent. What's the deal with that? Remember that? Here's where you're like the Bible in a year. And then in January or whatever, February, you get to Exodus and you're like, 
man, that's a lot of details about the tent. And then you go through it once, and then it happens again, like later on. Like, oh my gosh, here's the tent again. And so, but here's what the tent means. It's, it's God's promise to dwell with his people. That's what he says. He says, I want to dwell in their midst. Um, and so the tent is this like, although it's like seems boring to us, to them it would have been like such good news because it's like God's not going to leave us. Like he's going to come dwell among us in, in this tent and we, can, and we can still like have access to him. And this is great. Um, and so um, it's kind of like this. God's like so determined to dwell with his people. Here's what it reminds me of. Um, I have a son. His name is Liam. He's almost four. And a lot of times I'll give him like choices for his, his free time. We're going to do Liam. You can do this. You do this. And sometimes I'll say, Liam, you get two choices. You can stay inside and play with your toys or you can come outside and do yard work with me. What do you want to do? And surprisingly, he often chooses to come out with me and do yard work. And this is what he says. He's so sincere. He says, I want to go where you go. That's what he says to me. I want to go where you go. And, um, and of course, that means I get like no yard work done. But that's okay, like, you know? And he, he wants to go where I go. That's, that's what God is saying to them. Like, I want to go where you go. And of course, God loves us and wants to walk with us and dwell with us. But sometimes he loves us too much to leave us where we are, right? Sometimes he, he wants to walk with us, but he calls us out of... Out of um, uh, a sinful habit or a situation that might get us into trouble and cause us into further relationship with him. So, um, so there's our first word. We talked about God dwelling, right? That God wants to dwell in their midst of the tabernacle. Um, does that sound familiar from John 1? Right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's actually the same word. Um, it's more literally like God set up a tent among us. And it's absolutely the same word that the Exodus uses to talk about God with the tabernacle, okay? So um, Jesus, we're going to see Jesus as God's um, enactment of his promise to dwell among his people. He's going to come among his people, not just in a tent, but in a person, okay? Um, and so the, here's the second word that's coming up. Um, so Moses, he intercedes for the people, and he has, Moses can go to this tent, um, and he's talking to God, and he says, God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And, Moses, and God says to Moses, listen, no one can see my face and live. But I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll go back up to Mount Sinai and you're going to like hide in this like rock crevice and my glory is going to pass by you. Okay. Um, and so remember in John 1, it says, we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father. It's the main word in that passage. And that's totally, like, again, going back from the, the tie from John 1 to Exodus is really strong. This is definitely in John's mind as he's composing John 1. So um, what happens next is really important for the whole biblical story. Um, because God passes by and he says something. And it's the first time that God's going to describe himself in the Bible. And it comes up often with the rest of the Old Testament. It's actually the passage in the Old Testament that the Old Testament quotes the most. Does that make sense? Like, this comes up throughout like this. The prophets and the Psalms, they describe God using these same kinds of words all the time. Okay? And this is what he says. This is how God describes himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
And it goes on, and it's awesome to study. But the point is that God is not going to abandon his people. He is determined to not abandon them. He's promised to stay, to stay with them. Um, so this description of God gets a shout out in John 1. And it's hard to see in English, um, but many people who are smarter than me tell me that when Exodus says, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, John readapts it to full of grace and truth. Okay, I'm, I'm going to show you how we get there in a second. Um, but are you following me? Is that full of grace and truth, John's thinking of abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Um, and these two words are huge. And it's almost as if John's giving you like a glimpse, like a seed into the whole rest of the story of Jesus with these two words, grace and truth. Um, and even, I would say, he even sums up, it seems like the whole story of the Bible in these two ideas, grace and truth. So we're going to spend a second considering what these might mean. So um, first, uh, full of grace. This is a really Bibly word. We say all the time, grace to you. Okay, and, and uh, maybe sometimes we get so familiar with it, we forget what it actually means. We haven't really considered what it means. So here's the thing. In the Bible, when it uses this word grace, it's used to describe something that's favorable or delightful. So in the Psalms, when it talks about grace, um, it says stuff like, um, like a poet has like lips of grace. Like the, their, from, their, from their mouth, like words come that are like delightful and favorable. Or it talks about um, jewelry being like graceful, like a pendant or something, um, because it's something that's like delightful or favorable. Like, oh, like I see that jewelry and not really me, maybe my wife or someone like, oh yeah, I want that. Like I, I desire that, that delights me, okay? Um, so it's delight and favorable, but it's more than that. It's often a gift given in delight and favor. Okay, so we're going to do a couple quick stories. But remember in, um, in Esther, when she approaches the king and she asks for his grace. And because he delights in her, he gives her that grace and he doesn't destroy all their people. It's awesome stories. Check it out. But the point is, is that the king takes delight in Esther and so he gives her this request for grace. Um, and so we'll see that the, the most... The most prominent stories of grace are actually when someone doesn't get what they deserve. Um, the most extreme kind of grace is showing favor to someone who should get what they deserve and not a gracious gift. Okay, remember the story when, um, when Jacob cheats Esau out of his birthright and he steals like basically like a lot of money and stuff from him. And then he leaves. Um, he leaves for a while and as Jacob is coming back, he's terrified to come back and see Esau because he stole all of his stuff. And he's like, darn, Esau's going to kill me when he sees me. So he sends like an emissary and he asks for Esau to show grace. In other words, don't give me what I deserve. Um, treat, me, um, treat me with favor and delight, not as I deserve. And in the story, Esau actually grants him this gift. Esau is kind of a villain sometimes, but really, like, he's a pretty nice guy in the story. And so, um, so Esau gives his brother this, like, gift of delight and favor. Okay, so who's the person in the Bible you think who shows the most grace? Not the person, the being, just gave it away. It's God. God shows the most grace throughout the Bible. Um, and so, back to our story in Exodus, when Moses asks for, for God's grace— God in a, this like remarkable expression of like grace and love 
and compassion, he says, yes. And he, he promises to forgive his people and still to dwell among them. So grace doesn't just mean a gift, like a gift given out of like bitterness or something. Like God's like, well, fine, whatever. You know, that's not what it is. Grace is a gift given in love and, and delight and favor. And uh, if you think about it, don't we want the same thing from God? Right? We want God not just to like provide for us and leave us alone, but we are like all longing for God to be happy with us. Right? To delight in us, to favor us. And the Bible says that God delights to show mercy. That's part of his character. And he delights to show mercy, especially to, to sinners who have rebelled and betrayed him. And honestly, who knows why? <laughs> like, who knows why God is so patient and loving and gracious? But he is. He is shown to be the most gracious gift giver when he treats people who are the most, like, undeserving um, with, with, with grace and with compassion. Remember, in Romans 5, it says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus is full of grace and truth, right? He's full of grace and truth. So what is the truth part? I feel like um, when I think of truth, I think of like, just be honest with me. Like, tell me if I have like spinach in my teeth or something, right? Um, but truth here, like, Honestly, I don't think I've thought about it too much before. Like, what does it mean that Jesus is full of truth? And um, I think the key is to remember that it's harkening back to the Exodus story. So in the Exodus story, it says, God's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, right? So it's that faithfulness that's in view here. Um, full of truth refers to God's dogged determination to remain committed to his promises. It says like, oh, like no matter what, I'm going to stick with my people, no matter what. One of my favorite books, I'm serious about this, one of my favorite books is the Jesus Storybook Bible. And this is how this is summed up in there. It says that God loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. And so here in Exodus, we see God's promise to stay with his people Darn it, they keep turning away from him. <laughs> like he's promised to stay committed and they keep on like worshiping other gods and making other sacrifices and doing all kinds of like awful, deplorable things. So what's God going to do? Because he loves his creation and he's promised to stay committed to them. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to send the one who was full of grace and truth. In Jesus, God is going to bind himself to humanity to suffer the consequences of our rebellion. And of course, the cross is shameful and painful, but in a crazy way, it seems like God is delighted to show grace to us. And again, like, who knows why? Who knows why? But he is. He is delighted to welcome weary, repentant sinners back into his arms. So that's why Jesus is full of grace, because he's God's gift given in favor and delight. But he's also full of truth, because he's God's plan from the beginning to dwell among us. I'm going to read you some lyrics from one of my favorite Christmas songs. And maybe you'll disagree with me, it's not a Christmas song, but I, to me it is. So um, it's called A Stick, a Carrot, and a String. 
And, um, you know, it, it gets its name from, like, you know, like, like, motivate a donkey or something to, like, work all day. You can, like, labor all day without really getting the rewards. Got, like, a stick above its head and the carrot dangling so it can, like, just follow it. But then it never actually gets the thing that it's working for. That's the idea. A stick, a carrot, and a string. Um, and the start, the song starts at Jesus' birth, and then it ends at the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. Um, I'm going to read you the first part and the last part. And we'll see this, this truth I'm talking about. It says, The horse's hay beneath his bed, our Lord was born to a manger bed, that all whose wells run dry could drink of his supply. To keep him warm, the sheep drew near, so grateful for his coming here. Come with news of grace. Come to take my place. This is the last verse. It says, And the night was cool and clear as glass, with the sneaking snake in the garden grass. As deep cried out to deep, the disciples were fast asleep. And the snake perked up when he heard you ask, if you're willing that this cup might pass. But does not the Father guide the Son, not my will but yours be done? What else here to do? What else me but you? And the snake who held the world, a stick, a carrot, and a string, was crushed beneath the foot of you're not wanting anything. Do you see how the whole gospel is summed up in these words, grace and truth? Jesus is God's gift given in favor and delight. He's the fulfillment of God's plan to dwell with us. And nothing, nothing could deter Jesus from carrying out his rescue mission. Even in the garden, in the face of unimaginable death, he remains faithful to the plan, committed to his promises, because he delights in showing favor to undeserving sinners. In Jesus, God has shown that nothing, nothing, no hard heart, no sinful habit, no foolish mistake, no idol we create can separate us from the love of God. What's more, the same Jesus who, made, who remained committed to his promises, committed to his creation, in that garden, the same Jesus, the Bible says, dwells in your heart. So if you think that God is far from us now, we're mistaken because he's closer than ever to us. He's in us as a, as a body right here. He's also in us individually. <clears throat> the same Jesus who overcame every obstacle to dwell with people lives in your heart. And that is really good news. So during Christmas tide, take joy that God has determined not to abandon us despite our rebellion because God delights to show mercy and sent Christ to dwell among us. Nothing stopped him from giving the ultimate gift. For he delights in us with a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for sending your son for us. And we're just so amazed that you would delight so much to show us mercy. Don't always understand it, but I believe it's true. Uh, I pray that today and during this next couple weeks that you'd remind us of um, your plan to dwell with us and that would encourage us and we would actually find you to be closer than we thought before. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.